you have your Bibles, I hope you do. We will be back in the Beatitudes. If you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, I taught out of the uh, kind of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be looking at that a little bit further. So if you have your Bibles, turn to ch uh, chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. If you've made it there and you have the means and are able to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, Jesus. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Y'all can be seated. Uh, I've entitled this message, The Only Way to True Happiness. So I guess the first one would have been, and this is going to be part two. Uh, the Beatitudes, if you know anything about the book of Matthew, you have the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon pretty much carries over um, a couple of chapters, pretty lengthy. Well, the Beatitudes are kind of like the introduction to this sermon. The very first sermon that Jesus gives to the people. So he's kind of laying out here the characteristics of what it means to be a true Christian. And then after each characteristic, he's telling us about a promise from God. The Beatitudes is a Latin name referring to a state of happiness or bliss. So Jesus presents here the idea that we can be truly happy. True happiness. This is not happiness that's based on our circumstances you know, if you are here before, we talked about this. This is not temporary happiness. This is lasting, everlasting happiness. It's not natural to us to have this kind of happiness. Not at all. It's a happiness that can only come from God. So it's divinely granted happiness. We also talked about last time that there was a purpose to the order of these Beatitudes. Jesus didn't just throw them out there and the writer just write them in any old order. If you look at the, how these are laid out, you see there's a, a starting point and then it kind of increases as you go. Without the ones before it, the ones that come after it, they don't happen. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this phrase is the key to all that follows. 
You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven apart from it. It says, blessed are those poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are not poor in spirit, yours is not the kingdom of heaven. That's what it says. It's also the basic characteristic of a Christian. And like we said, all other characteristics follow this one. Jesus is not talking about material things here. He's not talking about being poor in money or anything. This is poor in spirit. He's only dealing with spiritual things here. This is the distinction between the Christian and the rest of the world. Blessed are the poor in spirit is the complete opposite of what the world is telling us, right? How many people do you, do you cut on TV and you, you hear somebody say, you know what, I'm just striving to be as poor in spirit as I possibly can. It's the exact opposite. I'm trying to be the best me, get the most things, just increase my life as much as I can while I'm here. That word poor in the original language is tohas. We talked about this last time. It was described to, to show the stance of a beggar. Not somebody that just holds their hand out, but this was somebody who was crouched down in a corner with their hand held out. And the other hand was covering their face because they were so ashamed. You see the resemblance there in the Christian life, right? When our sin is, is brought to the surface, when we see God for who He is and we see our sin for what it is, we're ashamed. We're ashamed. And all we can do is just beg for mercy, right? We saw that this verse is not talking about how we stand before men, but how we stand before God. We looked at the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. You remember that the, the, the uh, Pharisee was not poor in spirit, very proud in spirit. His prayer was, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Lord, thank you for... Uh, letting me be me, letting me tithe. Lord, I do this, I do that. All about me, me, me. And what did the tax collector do? He, could, he, he stood away. And he was too ashamed to even look to heaven. He just beat his chest, begged God for mercy. That's poor in spirit. It's the first beatitude because without it, none of these others would follow and the promise that follows this characteristic is the kingdom of heaven. Can't think of any better promise. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We saw how Jesus was not talking about just mourning a loss here. Yes, we all know that we experience loss here and we mourn because of that, but this is a spiritual mourning. And we saw that this sorrow is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is godly sorrow. This is sorrow that leads to repentance. And so it says, blessed are those who mourn. And you have to ask the question, how is it blessed who have sorrow? Well, you have to look at the promise afterwards. What does he say? The promise afterwards is they shall be comforted. This is not future comfort. This is right now comfort. If you have been forgiven of your sins, you know the comfort that I'm talking about. When that was lifted off of you, it was just a, a peace, a comfort. If we do not mourn our sins, 
then we're basically locking ourselves out of this happiness. The faithful Christian is constantly broken over their sinfulness. As long as they're wrapped in this flesh, we are constantly broken over our sinfulness. Our battle with sin, our brokenness over our sin, it's never over until we enter glory. That's a lifestyle of brokenness over our sin. Not only our sin, but the sins of the world. And we ask the question, what, what can keep us from having this godly sorrow? Number one, the love of sin in general. When you love your sin so much that you don't care about how serious it is, or you put yourself outside of God's grace, you think that I'm so bad that I'm just destined to sin. And because I feel like God has gave, given up on me or wouldn't want me, then I just give up on God. And probably the most dangerous one of the bunch is procrastination. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll deal with it when I get to this point. I got to clean my life up first. How many people in here clean their life up before they came to Jesus? It don't happen. You can't clean it up by yourself. Then we also looked at what helps us live a life of repentance. And I know that Bible and prayer are beat to death, but guess what? Those two things right there are what helps us live a life of repentance. Your Bible is there for instruction. Your Bible is there to look at and see how people who didn't deal with their sin, what happened to them? How dangerous was it? The warnings that God gives us for not dealing with sin. And then prayer. Ask God to help you. That is the way we communicate with Him. That's how we talk back to Him. He talks to us. We talk back to Him. Which leads us to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is actually quoting Scripture out of Psalm 37.11, and it basically says something similar to that. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So He is reminding us, reassuring us, that God's promise is that the meek will inherit the earth. Webster says meek is being deficient in spirit and courage. Did you get that? Being deficient in spirit and courage. So happy are the cowards? Is that what this says? It's not what this says. In the original language, this word was praus. It means mild or gentle. We could probably think of somebody mild and gentle that doesn't profess to be a Christian. So... How does this fit with this meaning here? If you actually look, the root of that word pra means more than, more than meek. Can you be more than meek apart from God? Absolutely not. In the NAS dictionary, biblical meekness is exercising God's strength under His control. Exercising God's strength under his control. Another writer I seen gave this kind of broke down um, 
example of what he's talking about here. It is self-control empowered by the Spirit. It's out of your control. Only the Spirit can control it, right? If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have this type of self-control. Throughout history, we see examples of people, groups, and nations aggressively overtaken by the force of powerful leaders. Those with very high authority want to rule the land. They want to take it all, right? But Jesus is saying something completely different here. He's saying the mild and gentle, the meek, those who are self, uh, with self-control empowered by the Spirit, they inherit the earth. Not the powerful and the meek, just the meek, only the meek. Now Matthew's audience at this time was Jewish. And you had to think of this through the mind of a Jew. There were several Jewish groups in this time that heavily influenced the people, the people looked up to. One was the Pharisees and one was the Zealots. Now there was more groups there was also the Sadducees and the Essenes, but I'm going to look at two on two different sides of the spectrum here just to show you what their mindset was. The Pharisees were a very religious group. They believed that when God's kingdom came, the Messiah would conquer Rome in some fashion and restore basically the Old Testament way of life. And it would probably be by some sort of miracle like God did in days past where He would rescue His people by the parting of the sea or whatever it might be. And then you had the zealots. These were the political activists of their time. And they, they looked to God's kingdom coming so the Messiah would overthrow Rome in a military style by force. So you have two different sides of the spectrum and everything in between, and this is what's influenced the Jewish people. So these Jews, when they knew that somebody came talking and everybody said the Messiah is here, they got excited. You see these huge crowds gathering around Jesus, right? Everywhere He went, huge crowds. And then they heard this message that Jesus gave. And He says, you have to be poor in spirit. You have to have godly sorrow over your sin and you have to be meek. And when I read that, all I could think about is I bet these Jews, you know the sound when you just let a balloon go and you don't tie it? The air was let out of them. Just like that. This wasn't what they wanted to hear. Or maybe the record scratch in the movie when everybody turns like, what did you say? This is not what they wanted. They wanted immediate, immediate fix, right? We want the earthly kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says about His kingdom. John chapter 18, starting in verse 33. This is when Jesus is standing before Pilate, the governor. The high priest had brought Him before them and they said, He's got to die. We can't put up with it anymore. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is not from this world. There was no Him coming here and things are all fixed, right? We see tons of examples of meekness in the Bible, but today we're going to look at two specifically. The first one is going to be Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So we might need to pay attention to this guy, right? More meek than anybody on the face of the earth. Exodus 5.1 Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Remember, meekest man on the face of the earth, standing before Pharaoh, making demands on behalf of God. Meek. Meek. Exodus chapter 32. And as soon as he came near the camp, this is when Moses is up on the mountain and God tells him, you better get back down there. He's literally getting the law written to him right there, right? God is giving the law and God says, you better get back down there. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Meekest man on the face of the earth. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. Meekest man on the face of the earth. How is this power under control? It seems as though Moses, man, he's mad, right? His anger burned hot. What type of anger is this that causes the meekest man on the face of the earth to, to react like this? Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. We have a hard time doing those two, right? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. How do you be mad and not sin? It's only out of righteous anger. And righteous anger is the only anger you have because of somebody doing something towards God, not towards you. And we'll see that in just a minute. This anger is not from self-pity. It's not from anything about who you are. It's not about you. John MacArthur says, The meek man would not dare defend himself before God, but he would defend the Lord before anyone. That's what we're saying here. This is what we're saying out of Moses. This was the reason he threw the tablets down. This was the reason he ground up the calf and made the people drink it. It was because his anger burned hot for the Lord. This is what they were doing against Him. This is how 
Righteous anger fits into meekness. It is power under control. The meek man is not proud of himself. Remember, Moses told God back when he called him in the burning bush, he said, Go to my people, go to Moses and tell him to let my people go. And Moses said, Who am I? You want me? I'm inadequate. I can't do that. I don't have it in me. So the meek man feels there's nothing about himself which he can brag or boast. It's all God, right? Remember the order that Jesus lays it out here. The poor in the spirit. Those who understand they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn godly sorrow for our sin and the sin of the world. Because they are poor in spirit and mourn over their sin, they no longer protect their feelings. They no longer feel sorry for themselves because they understand there's nothing about themselves to protect or defend. That's the meek man. But we waste, think about it guys, we waste so much time over this. We get our feelings hurt so easy. And if we're, if we're honest, because I had to really be honest with myself here whenever I was studying this, probably 95% of the stuff I get mad about ain't nothing to do with God. It's all with me. The meek man is also welcome to instruction. Some people handle that well. Some people, it's a hard pill to swallow. But look at Moses' example. Did Moses know what to do? God told him everything to do. Say this, say that, go here, put your staff in the water, do this. He was instructed through the whole entire thing. Second Timothy chapter 2 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The meek person instructs and corrects his opponents, those against him with gentleness, being kind to everyone while enduring evil. That's super easy, ain't it? But why do we do that? Why are we instructed to do that? Look at the second part of this, 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil <clears throat> after being captured by him to do his will. There's a reason for this meekness. There's a reason behind it. Somebody might just repent and be saved. What is better than that? What are we called to do? 
Finally, we see the ultimate example of meekness in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our perfect example of everything, really. He's the perfect example of power under control. He's the second person in the Trinity, in the Holy Trinity, and yet he became a man and humbled himself to the extent that he was dependent dependent entirely on God, the Father. Only what he gave him and only his purposes. He was a perfect, sinless man, 100% God, 100% man. God in the flesh took on a role of a servant. And he showed us the perfect example of what a true servant is. Him who through all things were created, humbled himself to wash the feet, the nasty feet of the disciples, took on the stance of a slave. Him who was on high humbled himself to this point, right? Mind you, those disciples all still doubted him. One betrayed him and the other denied him. And he washed their feet. Don't confuse this with being cowardly or weak. The meek man is the one who believes the truth so much that he'll die for it. Jesus defended the truth when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. He condemned the hypocritical religious leaders of the time. He proclaimed judgment on unrepentant sinners. He flipped over the tables in the temple. Does that look like cowardly or weak to you? Flip the tables over when they were selling in the house of the Lord for their own selfish gain. He was hated. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was beat until his bones showed through his body, through his skin. And finally put on a cross where God bared or poured the sins of the entire world out on him. He suffered beyond belief. He never fought back. He never defended himself when they rose against him. How does that work? Jesus showed us it ain't about me. It's about him. Everything. And for what? What did he do all this for? So you and I, enemies of God, could have a right standing before God and spend eternity with Him if we just put our faith in the work of Jesus. All of that for that. Enemies of God. He took on all of that while we were enemies. Let that sink in. This is meekness. So when you examine yourself, believe me, I did, do you see evidence of meekness like this? Do you get angry, only get angry when God is dishonored? Or is it mostly about who you are? Do you welcome correction? Or do you tell people to mind their own business? Do you teach and correct with gentleness in the midst of evil or do you write them all off as fools and lost without a bit of hope? 
Meekness is me realizing that I'm no better than the next sinner. It's me being done with myself for good. For good. It's me realizing that I don't have any rights. I'm completely relying on God's strength and His promise that I will be made happy, that I will enter His kingdom, and that I will inherit the earth. Now, happiness is what we have right now and we'll have forever. Comfort is what we have right now and we'll have forever. The other two are future promises. We will inherit the earth. I'm glad that's a future thing and not now. Who wants to inherit the earth in its current state? Does that sound like fun? So if we can see some evidence of meekness, but we struggle with others, we should pray to God to strengthen us. We should ask Him to help us set ourselves aside and only focus on what's important to Him. We cannot show self-control empowered by the Spirit if we're not relying on the Spirit to control us. And we do it all the time. I do it all the time. No, 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 no. It's got to be about me sometime, right? Most of the time, probably. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1, says, at, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's a, that's a big warning that I think a lot of us miss sometimes. The child is humble, right? And he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like one of these children. If there is no evidence of a broken spirit in your life, if there is no evidence of godly sorrow in your life, if there is no evidence of meekness in your life, this is your warning today from the Word of God. What are you waiting on? What are we waiting on?